Greetings, Quester, and welcome to the Meddlesome Meeples. Grab an ale, sheathe your axe, and join us fireside. Here's your host, Matt Williams, with Richard and Heather. Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Meddlesome Meeples. I'm Matt. I'm Richard. I'm Heather. So, Richard, what games are we going to be talking about this week? We are going to talk about Temp Worker Assassins and Pandemic Reign of Cthulhu. And we'll be discussing music with Adrenaline Rush and Crazy Licks. Yep, both of those have got new albums coming out this month. Yep. And in Tome Talk, Marrow by Robert Reed, which is <laughs> Richard is going to be talking about mm-hmm. this week. And in this week's Tiny Meeple's Big Talk, we're going to be looking at the question, which are the best pets in science fiction and fantasy with quite an unusual outlook on that question well quite a different outlook from each of us yeah because we, <laughs> like we normally get in these <laughs> yeah just like we looked for different things in in ships richard looked for one kind of thing in a pet and i looked for something much darker yeah well i looked for actual pets that, <laughs> that, that was the main thing very shocker there yeah. <laughs> so that one's going to be an interesting uh, topic so what's everyone been doing this week? Well, I've had a go on um, Tearaway on the PlayStation, which I know that came out quite a while ago, but it was um, it was one of the ones on the PlayStation Store this um, this month, and yeah, it's quite interesting controls on that. And there's a monster in the room. <laughs> <laughs> it's the furry. It's the fur ball of Tyrion. Yeah, <laughs> talking about just pets. ignore it. We're, we're kind of being held hostage. But... <laughs> <laughs> Nobody call the police. We've got the situation <laughs> under control. Yes, we're okay. Yes. Just no screaming. Yeah, that and also um, uh, Lies of the Tomb Raider as well. Yep. Uh, I've been growing caterpillars. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's what we've been doing. Oh, that's about as interesting as this week's <laughs> Kind of mad science. Yeah, yeah, yeah kids got a science project. Mm. Yeah, and I've been adding to my black library. With books from Richard. Oh yeah, yeah, we found a um, yeah, a good Warhammer book. Yep. And other than that, it's just been a case of uh, going to see Ghost in the Shell for me. Oh yeah, and for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah enjoyed that. That's really good. We had a, a thoroughly enjoyable time. Quite like the adaptation. Um, some of the casting was very spot on. I thought. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I was. I wanted to see what some of them would be like. Um, because so I really like the members here. of Section 9. Yeah, that seems to be working alright. How yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. not to record a show. Yeah. So, let's skip this part and get on with the rest of the show. <laughs> and indeed, our lives. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to be looking at the Temp Worker Assassins. Now, Temp Worker Assassins was a Kickstarter game by David Newton. It is, in essence, a deck building game. Mm-hmm. There's no other way to describe it, really. But it does have some variations to a lot of deck building games out there. Um, now, the way this is played, the objective is to have the most points at the end of five rounds or five days of yeah. play. Each player gets a set of little assassin meeples on your turn you're going to be taking uh, one of effectively one of two actions aren't you you're either going to an assent, attempt an assassination 
of one of the bosses. Of one of the bosses in the place where you're working as a temp. Yeah. So we are temp workers and we're trying to assassinate the bosses. Yeah. That's the main thing. But you couldn't get any of your tools in. Yeah, that's equipment. it. So you've so got you've to got just to... use things that are around the workplace. So that's right. So on your turn, you can either go to one of the bosses and attempt an assassination, or you can put a meeple into a different department within the agency mm-hmm. and gain new cards, for example. So you might be able to do something and get a new stationary card, like a, a stapler or a ruler or something that you can then turn into a weapon to a, a attempt an assassination yeah because your original weapons are just pencils that's the original yeah. hand of cards isn't it so you're turning up to at the beginning but you of can the get week. sharpeners to make them more powerful <laughs> with, with pencils yeah some of them are blunt aren't yeah they? and they're pretty much worthless you want to kind of trash those cards and then some of them are pointy so yeah. you, they have a, an, an attack of one yeah. so <laughs> you might be able to defeat a boss with them but probably not so like you say yeah get uh, sharpeners and staplers. You can like get uh, disk drives and CD-ROMs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Onto, uh, shuriken. Onto, yeah, yeah, you can get a disk shuriken. So you can put your meeples onto different locations and get a card for, for doing that. Mm-hmm. You can put meeples down and trash cards out of your hand. You can put uh, meeples down to give you extra attack, mm-hmm. can't you? And yeah. To allow you to draw more cards from your deck into your hand. Yeah. Now, one of the ways this game is different is at the start of each day, you get a t- to draw five cards. There are bonuses that you can get during through assassinating bosses or going to certain locations that allow you to draw extra cards yeah. at the beginning of that day. But then oh, no. after that, yeah. you add to that hand by gaining cards. So they go straight into your hand. Yeah. And you keep those, there's no mm-hmm. hand limit, and you just keep adding to your hand until you're ready to an attempt an assassination. Yeah, although I think we did kind of work out that just because it's a new working day, I don't think you need to put your cards away and then draw another five. But every time you do an assassination that's right, attempt, yeah. Sorry, that's yeah. when you get rid of all your cards and draw new ones. But like you say, the ones that you've built up yeah. throughout the week are it's still in your deck. So yeah. it is a deck builder, basically. Though what we were finding was that we were quite often just drawing new hands at the beginning of each day because we'd quite often be using our last meeple of the previous day to attempt yeah. an assassination. That yeah. happened pretty much every round, so it just flowed that we were mostly yeah, drawing it new did, hands. But, but we didn't have, have yeah. to do that. So that's effectively how this game plays. Each boss has a value, mm-hmm. and each boss has an attack strength that you need to defeat. Now, some of the bosses are worth more points, depending on how many other certain bosses you get. Yeah. Others just have a flat-out value. Um, that is quite interesting. Quite an interesting mechanic there. Mm-hmm. I I enjoy the assassination mechanic. Because yeah. you have in your hand stationary cards that you can only use when attempting to take out a contract on one of those bosses. Yes. Which means that you'll have cards that say, okay, discard, discard and draw more cards or draw an extra two cards and mm. things like that. But you can only use them once you've got an attack underway, which means unless you wait for absolutely ages and just keep putting meeples down to draw more cards you don't know when you're about to attempt an assassination whether or not you've got enough attack strength yeah, to do that. Yeah, because you use one of your cards, it says draw two more, and you're just hoping you'll get some attack strength in that. Exactly, yeah. You might or might not. So you kind of 
hoping that in your deck, once you've gained a few cards and you've you've done a few assassinations, you're hoping that you've got enough cards to be able to fulfil that contract. Because once you've started, your meeple's going to a, the security office for the rest of that day. Yeah, either way, because people have either seen him assassinate one of the bosses or attack them with a blunt pen, or you know. Yeah. Either uh, way, he's going to security. Yeah, so it's a, it's a nice way to add a little bit of uncertainty. Yeah. But without having to have a die. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I like that. And also, I like some of the... I like all the names of all the bosses you're meant to be attacking. I mean, there's the, like, the Capital Insolvency Goblins. The Health and Safety pilot. Halfling. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the, uh, the, the weaker, weaker ones. Bosses. So, yeah. <laughs> little, yeah, the um, Acquisition and Merger Viking. So this is... A bureaucrat castle within. Yeah. So I find that quite funny anyway. And um, the the places as well, because we set out these cards to be the different departments where you can put mm. meeples. And here we've got uh, things like the terrifying tech department, inhuman resources. Morbid, morbid marketing department. Yeah. The, the loathsome laboratory. Creepy cafeteria, corrupt cloakroom. Horrific so, haulage. Yeah, so it's, it's some kind of weird scary castle where they just get their paperwork mm. done basically into and the fact that they've hired all these tent workers is just such a good way for us to get in to be able to assassinate some of these, yeah. <laughs> these monsters yeah. and let's face it who hasn't had dreams of at some point assassinating their boss I'm self-employed so it's, it's, it's the dream isn't it yeah, well, <laughs> I'm not depressed yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, this is um, yeah, a very interesting idea for like fantasy and yeah, just it's just funny. This is, so, yeah. And it's it's a quite a nice, interesting combination of deck building and worker placement, isn't it? Mm. Yes. I mean, one of the big things I like about this is that much like with uh, deck building games like Xenoshift, you're getting the cards and they're going straight to your hand. Right. When you gain a card, you think you can think okay well I've got these cards in my hand mm. this will work well with them well, and, the you, and you was when we were all on the mission together wasn't it and yeah. it is yeah but when yeah. you get bought a card it went straight into your hand for that yeah, round which is and then cycled back into your deck after whereas in Star Realms it's straight into your discard pile and you have to wait for yeah. it yeah well most most deck building games that's the format you buy mm. it goes to your discard pile which means that when you get in towards the end of the game if you've got a big deck mm. and everybody wants a big deck you end up uh, buying cards and you might never actually get a chance to play them. Yes. And you can't. And you might look at a card and think, well, I like this card, this will work well with this card, mm. but then you're relying on chance to, that those cards are going to come out together. Yes. Whereas with a game like this, because it goes straight into your hand, you can think, okay, well, I've got this card, this card will work well with this card, mm. um, and you can put it in your hand and you know it's going to work together. Yeah, at least that of, one time. You're building your hand for that particular assassination yeah. attempt, aren't you? Because then when you've made the attempt, you put them back. And this is why, also just talking about deck building in general, because you want to have a lot of cards in your deck, but you want them to be useful. We have the really spooky recycling department where you can put a meeple there and you can draw three cards and trash one, or yeah. you can gain one of the um, equipment ones at the side and trash one of your cards. So, um, yeah, that's how you get rid of some of those blunt pencils and things, isn't it? And this place, there are places like, again, with this card, where effectively each one of the space, spaces will allow you to do something. So each one mm. of those spaces allow you to trash a card. But yes. there's different ways of, as you say, of doing that. You can either gain a card from the, uh, from the table 
and mm -hmm. trash one from your hand, or you can draw three from your card, draw uh, three, draw three from your deck, draw two from your deck. So each one of those has a slightly different um, way of fulfilling that requirement. Yeah, they're not like you've got four spaces that all do the same thing, which just makes the game more interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah, and um, if somebody else has already got their meeple there, then you can't use it. Like that card has got three possible spaces of mm. different ways you can do it, but it'll get covered up by somebody's meeple. But then at the although, end of the working day, although there is also a, um, a a location which lets you then copy a location that someone else is already using. Yes. So, so you can just use what their meeple's doing. But once that's gone, there. it's gone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like that and the thing I liked about it being in five days it's basically five rounds mm. but it's a working week and like, you start with monday and you go through to friday so it, it very bureaucratic isn't it this game on each day there's a, a bulletin card which goes to the first person to mm. fulfill a contract that day and they get better and better there don't yeah they, as, the, as the week goes by i was surprised that you got to actually use the friday one so on the friday you got to you killed one of the bosses so you got the friday bulletin which was a really good card but obviously you kind of you had to discard all your cards at that mm. point, didn't you? But then you managed to actually get that back and then use it on somebody else. So, yeah, it, it worked quite well. That did. Mm. Yeah. So overall, I really enjoyed this. As I say, this um, I like really like the fact that when you gain a card, it's not called buying. You just go to a location. You don't have to have currency. You just put a card on a gain location and you take one of the stationary cards. But when it, go, it goes straight to your hand, I think that's a great mechanic. I really like that. It's like the company pays for it. It's just yeah. lying around the office. <laughs> yeah. And I really like the idea that when you start a, a contract, you might not know if you're going to win or not. I mean, mm -hmm. You can just wait and keep building up, but that's kind of boring. You want to just get in there and see what happens. But you've only got three meeples. Was it three? I think it was five. Well, there's five here. Yeah. No, we had four because we were playing it three-player. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, So we had four meeples. So you've only got four chances that day. Mm. So you need to like build up a few cards and have a go, don't you, really? Yeah. You don't go straight into it because it's impossible to uh, win with a starting hand. Unless the it? halfling's there. I think even the halflings, um, you, you can only get... Once you've got more cards, but you can still do that on oh, the yeah, first day. Yeah, not not on the yeah not on the first. Yeah, day. not on the very first move. You can't right. you can't do that. But even they can withstand pencils. Can't yeah, they? <laughs> <laughs> especially the blunt ones. But mm -hmm. fortunately, there's no one using the ginger beer trick. But there's plenty that you can do on that first day. Mm -hmm. You can get into that game very quickly once you get a few cards. And I I just like the idea of that random element, mm. not knowing whether or not I'm going to be able to. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed this game. Yes, I enjoyed it too. Um, particularly, what I really enjoyed about it was the, the theme. Mm. The bureaucracy mixed with fantasy in a, a comedy way. And particularly since we played it that first time, it was nice to see what new bosses were turning up each mm. time. And... Um, and finding those really funny and uh, sometimes you want to attack them just because you like the name of it and stuff like that. so it might be worth less points but it's just so cool so yeah i i enjoyed it for that there is like a hard mode isn't there and there's yeah. some different things that we could try at some a, point. a lot of the so time with the hard modes the the locations weren't as good and mm. there were less locations on the card so you might have a card that had like this one would have three spaces instead of four yes um but they're still the same department names 
and yeah. effectively does the same thing. They're just not as good. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So if we we get a bit more used to it, then we might have to play it as a, a hard mode. Or well, we have to try play it with more players. Yeah, we just did it three player before, didn't we? We can go up to four. So right. that's Tent Worker Assassins. This gets a meeple recommendation. Mm. Thank you. Lock your doors, bar your windows, and get a spare change of pants at the ready. It's time for something scary now. We are going to talk about Pandemic Cthulhu, well, Reign of Cthulhu. Now, we haven't talked about him in a few episodes, and it's starting to get a bit weird. I've not even been wearing my Cthulhu hat. (laughs) I know, I know. We start to um, feel a bit unsettled when we don't talk about our our master in a few. We get very disturbing dreams. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we were saying before, we only do this programme because he's controlling us from the bottom of the sea and making us do it. So, yeah, we're going to talk about him today. And so this is a version of Pandemic. So Pandemic normally is a a game about um, containing an an epidemic, well, a pandemic, uh, a disease. Yeah, different viruses and diseases. So basically, this is a different version of that, but one based on the works of, of Lovecraft. And... With a lot of the games, we really recognise the characters and um, a lot of these old ones. So we have um, these quite large cards that represent old ones, and these go at the top of the board. And what's basically going to happen throughout the game is every time some of the cultists, these are these little guys, there's lots of these cultists, they're all the same, but they um, they turn up in different parts of Arkham and Innsmouth and the other, the other places. And... Yeah, there's four places, uh, like little towns, that they can turn up. So that's you've got Arkham, Dunwich, Innsmouth, and Kingsport. Yeah, all and places that's what the from the made books. Up of. Yeah, and each of those are divided into regions, aren't they? Yeah, and um, basically we each take a investigator to travel around, and on our turns we can defeat a cultist. We well, you've got f- you've got four actions you can do, and you can walk. You can defeat a cultist, and there's other things you can do, like take the bus or seal a gate, which is like the portal type things that they're trying to bring monsters through. Basically, if three cultists um, get into one location, because more will appear each turn, won't they? And if there's three already there, and then you would have to put a fourth one there, instead of doing that, they summon like the next old one. So we have all the cards at the top, but they'll all be kind of turned face down with just the scary backs showing. So you and don't then, know what's going to be coming next. You reveal yeah, them over when Yeah, when the only one time. that we do know is that right at the end, there is Cthulhu. So and if it, he comes out, you lose the game, don't you? Yeah, it just says here, the world is plunged into an age of madness, chaos and destruction. You have lost. So if that Unless, out, unless you yeah. your ultimate aim was to plunge the world into chaos, yeah, madness, yeah. and destruction. Yeah, then it's only the other people that have lost. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you basically won yeah. your version of the game. But ultimately, so, your game objective here is to get rid of all the gates, isn't it? To yeah, stop if you've done that, then you've won. Because There's then, four gates, then no there? more ones can come through. So, One in each region. Yeah, yeah. So we've got our little um, investigators here, and it can be one of several characters. It, they're just kind of defined by their jobs. They're very shallow people, aren't they? The doctor, isn't it? The, the detective. Mm-hmm. You've got the driver, the street magician, yeah. the reporter. You've got all these... D- and these are, if you've played um, normal Pandemic, you can see where these different skills and abilities have come straight from uh, one game into this, and they've just mm-hmm. been rethemed differently. 
Yeah. I haven't played. I've only played games that have got Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we have a sanity die that you have to roll at certain times. Mm. Um, after completing a gate, uh, use the gate action after resolving yeah. the effects of a relic card. Yeah, there's yeah. Cer- certain times where you have to roll one of these. Because, yeah, you can collect relics, and that's a that's a nice little thing, isn't it? Because normally mm. you kind of just going around and you can do your unique. Um, ability that your character can do but depending what relics you've collected mm. you might have something else you can do as well but when you use one mm. because of the weirdness of the whole thing you have to roll the sanity die yeah. and it can and be this is because well. the relics aren't one of your actions because you get four actions don't you yeah you can ca- one character has uh, five I can't remember who but one of the characters has five actions uh, yeah. but then you've got your different actions that you can use which is the doctor has five that's it that's it which is to walk, which means you can move from one location to an adjacent location using uh, the bus, which is uh, travelling from a bus station. You discard mm-hmm. a card to go to somewhere else in that town or yeah. anywhere on the board if, if you've got a card that matches your current town. Mm-hmm. Um, using the gate to go from one location to another, giving a, a clue or a, a card or a relic card yeah. to somebody else in your location, defeating one of these cultists. Mm-hmm. Or you can spend three actions to defeat a Shoggoth. Yeah. Or you can discard five clues to seal a gate, which is one of the uh, one of the things you've got to do to win the game. That is very concise. And using the relic cards doesn't count as one of those actions, but you can only use one on your turn, can't you? I think. I think that? sometimes you can use them like whenever. I think. So, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's but, just that you have it, and that's but the some of, sometimes if one of the certain ancient uh, old ones cards make it so that only the current player can use them can't they yeah yeah, yeah that's what i'm thinking that case. so the game keeps changing depending how many old ones are out and which ones are out so at the beginning of the game you shuffle all the ones that aren't cthulhu and then just put a few of them out so you never really know how the game is going to progress they're basically they're a little bit like the westeros cards <laughs> it's like it's like the weather which old one is stamping yeah. around the city at the moment so and this Niall Lathotep card does mm-hmm. look pretty nasty, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it looks like um, one of those fish on the bottom of the sea. Yeah, investigators may no longer do the user gate action. I never really do that anyway. It's a, a weird thing where obviously you can, you're in these different locations and you can walk to different ones. Um, but you can go to one of these bus stations mm. and you can, you can use a card to take the bus or you can use one of the cards from um, from the area that you're in. If it's like the right card, for say you're in Arkham, and use an Arkham mm. card and discard that, then you can take the bus to anywhere, yeah. can't you? So that, I think that's really useful. Um, and you I don't, don't have to roll a sanity die for that, because yeah, when I you just, use a gate, you have to... Because you're travelling through the a bus. horrible I mean, why, gate, aren't you? Why go through a dimension from a, to a nightmare universe, <laughs> and then out the other side, where you can just take the bus? Yeah. And um, So I tend to do that, but yeah, if you do do one of these things, you roll the sanity die, and it's a really cool little thing. So this is the only one that we, you just have the one in the game, mm. don't you? And it can be blank, or it can have this swirly pattern. Which means you get one insanity token. You you lose you the lose sanity one. token, don't you? With right. So yeah, you have the sanity, and then if you lose them, four sanity tokens you start off with, aren't they? Yeah. And so yeah, you would lose one. You can lose two, and that that would be very annoying. And there is this other symbol with these two little triangle guys, and it's that is two cultists turn up in your current location. So that could be very bad. Because if you 
if you're rolling the sanity die too often, because there are quite a few things that will make you roll the sanity dice. Yeah, just being in a Cthulhu story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you lose all, all four of your sanity, you do go insane. That's not as big a problem here as it is in some of the other Lovecraftian no. games, because all you do is you flip your investigator so, card yeah. over, which means you get one less action, and Even your that, abilities that. can be modified. Yeah. But then you have a different modifier here, and you have less actions. Yeah, that's but then you can seal a gate and become fully sane again. Yeah, and then you just turn up in Arkham Hospital, or go through some counselling, I expect, and then you're <laughs> sane again. So. Yeah, um, one of the interesting things I wanted to talk about is the way that. Well, there's two things. First of all, we have these evil stirs cards, mm. and, and they're mixed into the deck, aren't they? Yeah, when you're setting up the deck. Um, of where cultists are going to turn up because that's all kind of very random what you do is you divide the deck into four and then you mix one of these evil stirs cards into it and then you put the deck together yeah so basically every quarter of the way through there'll be a card at some point it could be Sometimes you can get one after the other as well. You can you? if you're very unlucky, but um, yeah, they're generally a little bit spaced out. You at least know that they're going to yeah. be slightly spaced out. They're not going to be just completely random. Actually, and one game, we had um, three of these old ones cards revealed one after the other because we had two of yeah. the evil stirs came out simultaneously. Yeah. And that triggered because of the drawing the cards and putting more cultists on the board. Mm. That meant that we then ended up with a summoning. Yeah. Which had yeah. a third card turned over. Yeah, if the cultists get together they it's tend bad. to summon something from yeah. another dimension. Something something's always gonna get a little bit summoned, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So basically what what I was gonna say though is that even if you're stopping the cultists very mm. well like one of these will still turn up every now and yeah. then and another old one will be revealed so the game still progresses the other thing was one of the things that happens when evil stirs first of all you fight the madness which is roll the sanity die then there's an awakening where you reveal the next old one then a shoggoth appears so that's one of these guys now these are a bit different to the normal baddies um, you need to use three actions to kill it mm -hmm. they don't just stay where they are Every time a little Shoggoth symbol appears um, on one of the cards that we draw, each it will move. Those cards. So yeah, each turn yeah. it's got a chance to move, hasn't it? Yeah, and what they do is they move towards the nearest gate. Now, yeah. at the start of the game, there's a gate in every location, but like as we progress, we close some of them, don't we? So these guys are just walking slowly towards a gate, and if they get there, it's okay. But then if we reveal another Shoggoth thing, and they would normally move a bit... They, 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 they disappear, the gate, don't, don't they? They go in the gate and they cause another old one to appear. So basically you want to stop these guys from getting to the gates. The fourth thing that happens on an Evil Stirs card is the cultists regroup. And I think mm. this is a, a great mechanic because what you do is you shuffle the cards, that location cards that you've already used. You shuffle them and then you put them back on the top of the deck. Mm. And what that means is that locations that have had cultists appear in the past are likely to have them again because you're getting the same cards, just shuffling them and putting them back on, on top. So basically, as you progress through the game, the same places are getting cultists. There's like mm. these areas where there's a lot of cult activity, it's like where they're doing a lot of recruiting or I don't know what they're doing. But um, you get those areas. Then as you go through, obviously you get a bit further through the deck each time. Mm. 
and there's more locations that they're spread to. So sometimes some games you play, there'll just be a lot of cultists, like say in Arkham, and then not many in Dunwich mm. until later in the game. And then later on, you have to start moving over to Dunwich to try and um, defeat them there as well. So I think that just works very well um, because it's not completely random. Yeah, You can kind of know where they might appear, which is what it'd be like if you were an investigator. Yeah. You wouldn't be completely clueless. But, yeah. And I think as well, it's um, it's quite interesting how some of the different player abilities work because mm-hmm. um, you might be thinking, right, well, I'm going to go and try and go to this area and contain as many of these quarters as I can while this player, because of their abilities, mm. are going to go and try and chase down a Shoggoth and make it, and try yeah. and make sure you're using your character to the best. Same with Pandemic. Um, but it's actually a very fast-paced game. Mm. I actually find this much faster than Pandemic. On your turn, uh, the way it works is that you can you do your four actions, then you draw two player cards and resolve if you're fortunate enough to get one, one of the Evil Stirs cards, and then mm. you uh, draw summoning cards. Now, your drawing player cards are when you're getting your clue cards and possibly some relics, yeah. um, but then you've also got your drawing your summoning cards, which are telling you where to put your... The cultists. cultists. Yeah. And that's where things usually go really badly very quickly. And you can, as we say, you can, within the space of a couple of turns, have several old ones summoned. Mm. And the game can end. I mean, I've known games of this end in like 15 minutes because it's you've just had a, a really bad chain of events. So there is a bit of a random element, but it's I like how fast paced the game is. I like the way it's themed. I think uh, taking. Uh, I mean, it's it's thin Lovecraftian. You're not going into the, really the lore of it like you do with maybe some of the other games like uh, Aldrich or or uh, Mansions of Madness. But the theme actually suits really, really well to this game. And I like that it's co-op and we're mm. playing together as a team. We're working together. Um, I think some people might not like the random nature of it, but then the same w- would be said for Pandemic. It can be annoying when you keep turning over cards that mean you keep having to draw more ancient ones um, but on the plus side if that happens and the game suddenly ends it's very quick to reset and play another game yeah and when you shuffle the old ones and put them back out again I mean it could be a completely different game the next time very much so and on some of those cards you've got the potential to be able to turn some of those cards over it doesn't slow the track down but it just means that you cancel out that old one's ability you can cancel their ability sometimes. Mm. There's some artifacts that you can put on top of an old one, isn't there, yeah. as well? I definitely feel that this is a tougher game than Pandemic. Right. But I prefer it for that. Mm. Okay. I think I um, never really feel like I want to play Pandemic. Um, I mean, I'm all in favour of viruses being contained, but <laughs> you know, as far as a game goes, I prefer this kind of theme. Mm. Um and like you say, the theme, the artwork is is great. The theme works really well for a game like this because basically you rely a lot on your imagination. Mm. Really, you um, you're trying to stop these monsters from being drawn through into our world, and you do kind of really feel like you're doing that mm. <laughs> while you while you're playing it because 
like these cultists appear in different places and you think oh i have to try and travel over there before they and you don't know whether or not they're going to manage to do an awakening before you get there yeah there could be other concerns as well there could be a shog off walking towards a gate somewhere else and yeah yeah, you you get quite into it or you can be in a place and the shog off moves in yeah yeah and then you have to roll the sanity die because it's so ugly so yeah it's, it's, it's a yeah and with the board i love the artwork on the board the board's beautiful when heather was with us we played this and we actually ended up trying to make it atmospheric, so we put some music on, played by candlelight, didn't we? Yeah, <laughs> that was re- that was fun. That was cre- that was creepy, but it was creepy fun. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that was very creepy. Actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it does work quite well by candlelight. It does. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, you don't need to see that much. But These the guys are quite bright as well. Like they show up in the in the light. Yeah, yeah. the light reflects off them fairly well. Mm. So yeah, I definitely enjoyed this much prefer this to normal pandemic mm. and if you have played pandemic you'll pick this up and you'll go through this rule book in about five minutes because so much of them the mechanics are the same mm. so that is pandemic reign of cthulhu by z-man games the bard's corner hi everyone welcome to april's first episode of bard's corner first we're going to go through some tour dates and then we'll move on to some album reviews that's right so first of all who remembers reef from the 90s their first album replenish was a big hit i remember listening to a song off there called naked quite a lot because i love the guitar riff on that sorry i was still really little in the 90s i don't remember yeah you were <laughs> you were you were six or so years old when that album came out <laughs> it's only five years difference it seems like a long, long, long five years is a long time but kenway house the guitarist from uh the guitarist from reef has got a new album with a new band called gold it's been described before quite fairly as zeppelin meets Kate Bush. That gives you a, a very good idea of what they sound like. Uh, they've just announced some tour dates which will run from May through to July and that's going to be in support of their new album uh, Rising which comes out at the beginning of May. Now there's going to be dates added to that. At the moment I think there's about six or seven dates quite spread out amongst that time uh, but if you keep up to date with paradiserock.co.uk we'll bring you more tour information as we get it. And we've got albums coming out this month. We've got Crazy Licks, Rough Justice on the 21st of April. That's right. Uh, now, Crazy Licks uh, were formed back in 2002. Uh, this is their fifth studio album in, in uh, the last 15 years. They've also got a, a live album as well. But Crazy Licks' sound is firmly rooted in sleaze rock of the 80s. Uh, there's also inspiration there from some of the 80s horror films and that comes through uh, lyrically when you listen to some of the tracks and also with the video uh, direction for Wild Child. Not quite surprising because of that, they've also got two of their songs from their new album Rough Justice being used in a horror game coming out this year. Uh, Friday the 13th The Game, that's going to be out on uh, PlayStation, Xbox and PC. Some really good tracks on there. Uh, My favourite one was a song called Wild Child. Uh, but there's also tracks like uh, Shop With A Needle Of Love and a really good power ballad on there called If It's Love. Now, I'd say if you like 80s sleaze rock, you'll love this album. Uh, if you're a fan of Dokken or Firehouse, then this is a, a band for you to check out. That's out April 21st via Frontiers Music SRL. Next we have Adrenaline Rush, Soul Survivor. Yeah, now this is a female-fronted band. Tave Wanning was the lead singer of, of this group. 
Now this album really does have some great production on it. It's got some catchy songs, it's got some slick guitars, it's got a heavier edge than their debut album which was released back in 2014. Eric Martinson of Eclipse is still involved uh, with this album. He co-wrote some of the songs, he did some production on there. There's some really good songs on there. Don't Wake Me Up was my favourite off that album. It really showcased uh, how good a singer Wanning can be. There's some really good guitaring on there as well. Wild Side was another good track. Uh, Stand My Ground was probably my second favourite track on the album. And then Breaking the Chains. All of those very good melodic hard rock. As I say, a, a heavier edge. Now, this band has got some flack over the last few years because of Wanning as the lead singer. Oh, I like her. Well, th there are a lot of people who feels like she just doesn't fit in with the sound of the band because vocally she's quite unique. Now, some people compare her a bit to Britney Spears, which I think is a little unfair. Now, if you see the cover now. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, she's much more of a rock I've not chick. listened to the earlier stuff, but I didn't really get that kind of idea from this album, to be honest. Yeah. This the, well, this is the first album I've listened to. She is a, a unique sound. Mm. I understand why people might feel she doesn't fit in, because she is mm. different as a singer to a lot of the uh, mm. singers out there on the melodic rock scene at the moment. But I think because of that, she does have a very unique voice and she gives a very unique sound to Adrenaline Rush. It does go together. It's not, it doesn't sound unusual, as in it doesn't sound like you think, oh, that does, that's not right. Yeah, it's, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think the people that are criticising her are saying that she's bad. Mm. No one's saying that she's a bad singer, just that she doesn't fit with that style of rock. They're probably right, but that's not a bad thing. It just means that she's got a unique sound and the band have a unique sound because of it. Um, but I've always been a fan of unique singers like mm. uh, Stevie Nicks. And I'd, some of my earliest choices for female-fronted melodic rock was people like Sue Willettes from Dante's Fox and Tamara yeah. Champlin. If you like uh, to have a melodic rock band with a unique sounding female fronted female singer, then I'd say this is definitely an album worth checking out. I mean, I highly recommend this one. I gave this one an 8.5 for Paradise Rock uh, UK. And this is one that I've been listening to repeatedly. There's not a bad um, track on that album. No, I find she's really easy to listen to. She's got a really crisp, clean voice. Mm. I find as well, which I, I quite like it. That's kind of like my style. I like that kind of music. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's really easy to listen to. Definitely. So if you want to see what some of those bands sound like, go to paradiserock.co.uk. Check out the reviews on there. It's got a lot more information and you can hear some of the songs on there as well. Tiny Meeple's Big Talk. So thank you for joining us for this episode of Tiny Meeple's Big Talk. Mm. What we're going to be discussing today is another big and relevant issue mm. and that is what are the best pets to have from the worlds of fantasy and science fiction yeah so another <laughs> very hard hitting topic this is so last time we were living on different spaceships weren't yep. we so yeah <laughs> this is kind of a bit of an extension of that really isn't it because it's all about our the life that we would have but this time it is not so much us going there well, i don't think so anyway to like live in a sci-fi environment it's more kind of what we could have what, now yeah what we can have now from there like what pets yeah so you, like pets is quite a good aspect of that isn't it because when you think of the the people's everyday lives when they're in these situations or living on these ships or in these castles or wherever they're living <laughs> the pets is a big part of that so so we're going to talk about what pets we would like to have 
Yeah, so I think I'll, I'll start off uh, just by saying that there were questions in my mind as to really what constituted a pet. Mm. So, because when I thought about this topic, the first thing I thought, first few things I thought was from Star Wars, the Rancor. I wonder if we're going to get to Rancors, but I thought we'd have to kind of build up to it. <laughs> you, always, you always have to build up to a Rancor, don't you? Uh, we thought about the Rancor. Well, I thought about the Rancors from Star Wars, um, I and actually, and this is something I actually asked a friend as to whether or not they would consider this as a, a viable pet. Xenomorphs. I was now, going to use that as a ridiculous example if you came out with something stupid. <laughs> well, the reason the reason that Xenomorphs came to my mind, and the, and and the third example I'm going to use the thing. Not the thing from the Fantastic Four, but from John Carpenter's The Thing, the yeah, alien creature. Okay. Those, when I thought about different alien life forms that you could possibly have you as pets. You could already have that as a pet, you wouldn't well, know. This, well, this is it. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking, how would I know if I lost my pet? Because it could be anybody, it could be anything, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, but I thought there was a couple of basic rules I was going to try and follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the first one immediately discounted all three of those. Right. And that was that for it to classify as a pet, I felt it had to be more likely to kill somebody else than to kill you. Okay. And I thought, a xenomorph, well, that's going to kill everybody. Yeah. The thing may or may not even be there. Mm-hmm. I could be the thing and not know it. Yeah. And a rancor, well, I haven't got the space to keep a rancor. No. That is um... going to be the same issue later, but I did think, you know, a rancor would just kill whoever was there. Yeah. It Possibly seemed... if you're keeping it chained and in a pit and asking it to kill Jedis, it's going to be pretty mad anyway. That guy was pretty upset when Luke killed it, wasn't he? I think that guy did treat it like a pet. I don't think... I think Jabba considered it as a pet, but I don't think he so much cared for the rancor as that he liked seeing it chomp down on saber-wielding madmen. Yeah, like that. Yeah, no, I mean the other guy. The, the guy... Who look? Who look? Oh, sorry, yeah, I thought you meant Jabba. Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. I know, I know you well, Jabba yeah. is a, a few steps above that. Yeah. Into early. Yeah. And then my other thought was, again, and the xenomorph could apply. To, well, any of those three could apply to this category as well. Mm-hmm. Was its level of intelligence? Because I did think, would you class R two D two as a pet? And well, I thought, well, I don't feel like I could do that because he is very independent, and he's very intelligent. Oh yeah, it's nothing Same to do with, with the fact that he's a robot. It's just the fact that he he's more of a character, isn't yeah. he, than a pet. And to us, in a, in, a, in a way, and this is a little bit ridiculous. The same could also be said for, and I didn't consider this as a viable pet, but the cat from Red Dwarf, because well, he effectively was, he was well, a cat. He was a he was Lister's pet, and well, in Frankenstein some ways, was, and then then the cat evolved from it. So yeah. he kind of is a cat, but. Yeah, he's not just a seems more like a guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And I mean, you don't want to have to brush his hair and feed him, do you? I mean, that's well, just going to get He difficult. looks after himself, he's so vain. Exactly. <laughs> so. He, wouldn't, he probably wouldn't let anybody else go. Yeah, yeah. Not He'd with be afraid of turning of into Dwayne Dibley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, that, so I did loosely apply those... Um, Criteria to we don't talk thoughts. about these rules beforehand. No, we we want that is one of be, the rules actually. <laughs> it, is, it is one of our rules. We like to um, have the debate on camera, so we yeah. get the, the uh, we think of a, we agree on a question and then we shut up about yeah. it until we're on camera. So um, yeah, I thought about similar things to that, but not quite the same. I hadn't really thought about it, whether it would kill me or somebody else. Um, I do think that is an important thing to consider in a pet, whether it's likely to kill you or not. Yeah, well, I think if it was too likely to kill me, then it wouldn't really be a pet. Yeah. Like, I just, I think I would assume that I would have already tamed it in some way mm. beforehand anyway. But the level of intelligence thing, that was something I did yeah. think about. So, 
because I don't actually have any pets myself. I have had them in the past, and but I really like it when other people have pets. Mm. And it's a bit of a weird question for me because, like, in some ways, just having an animal myself is a bit of a flight of fancy anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, I just kind of thought theoretic obviously this is very very <laughs> this is believe like... me when we go into my list you'll see how theoretical this is going to be <laughs> yeah, we'll see... yeah i'm getting an idea of what your list might be like but yeah so it's a bit difficult to think for me what i would consider to be a pet or not so i just kind of thought what other people have considered a pet mm. in sci-fi and fantasy mostly sci-fi and then just thinking which i think are the best out of them and yeah, yeah. i mean when i made my list as well i did find that i I've made quite a long list so I then grouped some of them into categories Mm -hmm. so for example there is three dragons on my list which I've grouped together as effectively as one but I'll mention all three it was just the idea of having a dragon dragon as opposed to one of those specific three dragons Um, so one of the dragons on my list Mm -hmm. was Ancalagon the Black Okay. right now that uh, is from um, Tolkien's work right and he was the largest dragon in Middle Earth. Okay. In fact, he was so big that when he fell in battle, he broke mountains. That's pretty big. Yeah, that is pretty big. I did think, where would I keep the feed? And I wouldn't want to have case. to clean up the mess. Yeah. That is the thing that, that puts me off pets anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's what put me off children before I had them. <laughs> <laughs> So, but yeah, I was thinking of dragons. I thought of Ancalagon the Black. Um, I thought about uh, Ryath, who is one of the Valhiru dragons uh, from Raymond E. Feast's Rift War cycle. Right. Okay. Um, so she was a dragon that one of the characters, Thomas, uh, summoned to help him. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a fantastic dragon. And Sephira uh, from Krista Paolini's Inheritance cycle. Right. Uh, now, may- some people may be aware of the film Aragon, which was diabolical. So Aragon was not a patch on the books, which I think is why they never made a sequel to that, whereas there were several books. But Sephira, even depicted in the uh, film, was absolutely fantastic. She was a blue dragon, Mm -hmm. she was telepathic, um, she had incredible powers, and most dragons in science fiction are depicted as being very wise, majestic creatures. Yeah. I can see myself, if I had a dragon as a pet, getting advice from my dragon. Yeah, this is one of having the a real telepathic link with my dragon. I, I would consider a dragon more of a friend than a pet. Yeah, this is one of I don't have any dragons on my list. But there was one that I considered, and that was oh, that guy from Neverending Story, Falcor. Right. That that's the only one that seems anything like a pet. Well, because he looks like a dog. I did think <laughs> about whether or not I should take the dragons off my list for that reason because they were so majestic and graceful but I also thought yeah if I had a dragon Mm -hmm. and I was riding around on a dragon how good life would be I mean you wouldn't I mean think about it you get your car you park up in the wrong place because you don't read a sign you get out the car and you got a parking ticket and the dragon just no one's gonna give you a parking ticket if you've parked a dragon in a spot yeah (laughs) so do you want a pet or a car (laughs) I think a pet that I can use as transport in is is good in the sense, and yeah, okay. I could you know burn down small villages. Yeah. If I had a dragon. Okay. Yeah. Gonna <laughs> <laughs> kind of have a Death Star with a lead, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> It'd have to be a pretty big lead. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, so I definitely. I mean, I've I've always loved fantasy. I've always loved dragons. So I mm. had to throw a dragon on on the my only, list. The only thing of kind of that nature that I thought about was the direwolves from Game of Thrones, uh, because they were actually pets. Yeah. Whereas, like for Daenerys with the dragons, they were pets for a while. And then they were, and then they started going off and yeah, murdering. Yeah, and then they like took her in the middle of nowhere and left her and stuff like that. And yeah, th- well, were... you notice I didn't mention any of Daenerys's dragons on there. Well, no, but for you that reason, big Balerion enough doesn't flipping dragons on there. On there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I thought the um, the direwolves would be an option. The only reason I didn't choose any of them was people keep killing them for revenge when they didn't do anything, and I just think. <laughs> Even though obviously you'd, you'd just be having them separately here mm. rather than in that kind of universe, I just still think it never turns out well when people <laughs> have got a direwolf, even though they're really cool. And you won't want think people to accidentally think you were a Stark and, and no, you have the Lannisters send their regards. <laughs> would you? No, no, you wouldn't want that. And but direwolves, I like the fact that they did actually exist, like in, the, in prehistoric times, and it would just be nice to have one of them back, really. So you've talked about some dragons, which... Um, just to set the tone for yeah, the Yeah, just to set the tone. Um, so things that are actually considered pets by the characters that they have. Mm. Um, the, what's the first one that comes to mind if you think about a pet in sci-fi? What for you? It's It's got to be Spot, hasn't it? Yeah, I thought of Spot at first. <laughs> Because that's the only when you think of a pet in sci-fi, you think, oh, Data had a cat. Yeah. And it did seem like quite a nice cat, um, and it was very kind of docile, and mm. it even let Worf look after it for a while and stuff like that. <laughs> um, it seemed and it lived on the Enterprise, and it seemed to kind of get on fine, mm. didn't it, with like feline nutritional supplement, whatever. That Although had. it didn't get on well with Worf. It didn't get on well with him, no, but. I just, it's funny that Wolf looked after it. <laughs> yeah. Wolf was probably thinking of it as like a triple with legs. <laughs> yeah, you know, Klingons don't like triple. Yeah, they have triple with them. <laughs> yeah. Triple would be a they very have triple bad with pet. tribbles. Yeah, yeah, they do. Um, yeah, yeah, a triple would be a terrible pet. So we've not put them on the list. I so, did think yeah. of tribbles. Yeah, did you? Because I know my wife loves tribbles, right. but I thought they're just basically little sacks of self-replicating meat, aren't they? They'd be everywhere. Yeah, you just have a house full of tribbles <laughs> yeah. and you'd be just throwing them out and stuff. So, yeah, because like Chekhov and Uhura liked them at first, <laughs> and then what happened? They all fell on Kirk's head. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, randomly, they're gonna spontaneously explode. That's that as well. <laughs> oh, the, yeah, quite a bit of when they eat that. Yeah. So the spot. As a cat. The other cat in sci-fi is Jones. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And from Alien. So, again, that was a kind of a very docile cat that seemed to be fine living in mm. space, didn't it? Didn't like a xenomorph, but then who does? And, yeah, it was nice for Ripley to be able to save it and everything. But as I've, I've written on my notes here, they're just cats. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you can have a cat in real life and it's fine. They are They are. There are cats from sci-fi, but it's not like you think, oh, I wish I could live in that amazing sci-fi world so I could have a cat. <laughs> yeah, because like you've got two cats anyway. So well, I do, and um, actually, I think this will be a good place to go into my second category because mm. I think this is one of one of the very little areas of crossover we're going to have here. Because I also had Jones on my list. Yeah, because um, I, I had you a, would. I had a category of cats, so there were four cats on my list. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jones was one of them. And the reason I picked Jones was because I I likened the idea of a, of a pet that could survive xenomorphs. 
Yeah. And Jones survived Xenomorphs. He was only one of two survivors, wasn't he? Yeah. In Aliens. Yeah. Um, and actually, I do have a cat called Jones. Yeah. We named a cat. We've, we've, I've got two cats at the minute. One of them's called Jones. And if, if you noticed a, a, a jump in the um, in the recording a few minutes ago, it's because he was... But he was uh, <laughs> he was meowing very very loudly at the door, wanting to get out. So I think he was yeah. objecting at the thought of me having another pet. Yeah, <laughs> he wants yeah. to just get out and not listen to this anymore. He's already competing with another cat. So. <laughs> yeah. But jo- Jonesy was one of my um, cats. Mm-hmm. Um, another one of my cats was Grebo. Yeah, Grebo's a, a good idea from Discworld. Nanny Og's cat. Yeah, he's Nanny Og's cat. He's called Grebo by Nanny Og. He's also known as get off your bugger to most of the population of Lankra. He's the father of most of the cats in Lankra. Yeah. Uh, and he's a pretty vicious cat, isn't he? That, that's why I didn't have him on my list. I mean, but I he's like not vinish, vicious to Nanny Og, and that's no. the, that's my main category. Oh, yeah, that was, that was part of your That thing, was one of my so. categories. I one mean, this like... is a cat that once swallowed a vampire. Yeah, <laughs> that <laughs> happened as well. And yeah. that is sort of thing that you do want in a pet and if also, you live in a place where vampires maybe a thing yeah he found a new quantum state as well didn't it when he was in that box it's yeah. like, like a cat can be either alive or dead but it can also be furious yeah. <laughs> which is when Grebo came out of it <laughs> something that Schrodinger for some reason never published yeah so there was Jonesy there was Grebo um, there was Cringer I've got Cringer on my list as well I've got Cringer slash Battle Cat yeah and that's just because it's just so weird how scared he is of everything. <laughs> and yet, with the power of Grayskull, he can turn into Battle Cat and become amazing. And Battle Cat is brilliant, <laughs> isn't he? Battle Cat serves as He-Man's uh, mount. He protects him. He mm. will fight with him. Um, but Cringer is a Cringer. He's totally afraid of everything. And then, yeah. as you say, with the power of Eternia, he, he turns into this brilliant mount for He-Man. And yet, when you consider where he lives and the fact that there's Skeletor and all kinds of yeah. horrors around. Um, it's not all that... It's not all that strange that you would be scared. Yeah. It's a bit like the um, the rational lion from <laughs> <laughs> Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I think he's right to be scared of all that stuff. But he can, as as Battle Cat, he can fight and he, he's basically a big yeah. green tiger. And, and who, who would want a big green tiger? Yeah. The red uh, saddle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and the helmet is really cool as well. It basically, he's yeah. the same, but brave. Yeah. And, and with that armour, so... The same as He-Man. I mean, yeah. he's the same when he turns into He-Man. <laughs> he's just as ripped when he's Prince Adam. Yeah. So. My fourth cat on, on, that I had on my list was... I don't think he actually ever was given a name mm-hmm. in the book. He was referred to as the cat a lot. And that was uh, Denser's cat, his familiar, in The Chronicles of the Raven by James Barclay. Oh, right. Okay. Which was a set of books. And he was in the first book. Mm-hmm. And he was a familiar, which meant he... Um, shared part of Denser's consciousness right? Okay. Uh, and he appeared to Denser as a cat mm. but he could when he went off appear to other people as their worst nightmare they'd see like this hellish monster uh, mm. if they wanted to That'd and he, ac- he acted as Denser's guard, his companion mm. uh, he acted as a scout he ferried messengers uh, he was an offensive weapon for Dancer uh, but he was just so useful he did so many different things right, yeah. um, and he'd go out and he'd, he'd take out bad guys to keep Dancer safe and then the next minute he was snuggled up inside Dancer's cloak and it was just it was oh, just a really yeah. nice um, yeah. animal yeah so that can still be considered a pet then that's good yeah. yeah so what was your next one 
Um, well, after I've got Spot and Jones, just cats, I've got Porthos, just a dog. <laughs> <laughs> just a cat to just a dog. Yeah, yeah, so that this is um, Archer's little cute beagle from uh, Enterprise. Enterprise. So uh, one of the nice things about that is it, it was such a cute little dog. It seemed to be mm. perpetually a puppy mm. somehow. Um, it is one of the cutest dogs in science fiction, isn't it? Yeah, and also he had a pretty cool end when... In one of the J.J. Evans films, Scotty mentions that he lost Captain Archer's beagle trying to beam it <laughs> with his new algorithm thing. So, yeah, that, that's that's pretty cool anyway. So Cool and tragic. Yeah, it's tragic, but, you know, he, he's the only member of Enterprise to get a mention in those films. <laughs> so, yeah. Right, okay, so um, there was that. But then the next actual one that I'd got was K-9 from Doctor, Doctor Who. Who. Yeah. And the Sarah Jane adventures, isn't it? Well, he had his own series, basically, mm. didn't he, really? So, yeah, K-9, a robot dog, and obviously there's loads of advantages to that. Mm. It's cleaner. Um, it's just, <laughs> that's one of the main things that puts me off dogs, is <laughs> having to clean up after them and stuff. But yeah, K-9, and he is intelligent as well, so I'm not sure how he would fit in on our list of, mm. of pets because of him being a bit more intelligent that way. Yeah, I think K9's allowed. I, I did... K9 crossed my mind when I was mm. making my list. Um, but I decided against including K9 just because I, I didn't find him particularly interesting. Mm. But also, I kept thinking of the Daggett from Battlestar Galactica. Right, yeah. Remember when um, well. the little yeah. boy's dog dies after the Cylon attack? Mm, and he gets so the Daggett. He gets the Daggett, which was a robot dog. Because obviously in Battlestar Galactica, you can't have normal names like dogs for things. So yeah. he had, instead of having a robot dog, he had a robo Daggett, didn't he? And it looked horrendous. Yes. <laughs> it really did look horrendous. Mm. It was just like um, bits of like 70s tape and pipes and yeah. fur and I think it was actually played by a chimpanzee yeah I think also, it was, it was yeah. which was bizarre that was weird because yeah. the chimp would probably have looked more like a dog than, what, than the actual robot daggett yeah you just, just have a pet chimp yeah <laughs> but so basically that puts you off canine as well because that, that was so bad <laughs> that was so bad it put me off canine right yeah canine looks a little bit more retro sci-fi-ish mm. doesn't it and it'd be pretty cool to have that going around the floor wouldn't it really? yeah so, I mean, right. if, yeah. if canine turned up at my doorstep tomorrow I'd probably adopt him I mean he was a very intelligent creature wasn't he he had like an encyclopedic yeah. uh, brain because he had a computer he could shoot a laser from his nose or something like that couldn't he uh, which... why not yeah it's what you want in a dog. Yeah. <laughs> but if there was a dragon there that you could have instead, then you'd Oh, I'd, I'd always choose yeah. the dragon. And then okay. I'd probably use the dragon to eat canine. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, um, but speaking of dogs, I think uh, one of my four categories that I grouped together was dogs, one of which was Lockjaw. Okay. Now, Lockjaw is from the Inhumans Court, is mm-hmm. uh, from by Marvel. He is super strong, he can eat anything. And the Inhumans, so Black Bolt, will use him to teleport. Okay. So they'll uh, he can go uh, to the moon, to different places on Earth. He can even transport between dimensions. <laughs> and yeah. I just thought, you know, as we mentioned on uh, our previous Tiny Meeple's Big Talk about sci-fi ships, how much I'd love to have a, a ship with a transporter mm. so that I could just go wherever I wanted to go and I could visit so places and friends with yeah. long way. And this is kind of where Lockjaw comes into it for me because he, he could take me to wherever I wanted to go and visit mm. friends and things like that. Uh, so, and I could visit o- other dimensions. 
Yeah. So if I had Lockjaw, I might be able to go and get my TARDIS and then go from my TARDIS to go and get my get bird of prey and yeah. get a dragon. And, you know, it, again, it's kind of like the key to everything. I think if we keep doing these big talks, then we're going to find a way to get everything we ever wanted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's all in the thought. Mm. Um, and then from Futurama. Yep. Do you remember Seymour? I remember Seymour and it's very, very sad. I've got Seymour on my list. You've got? Oh, I didn't know. You, uh, I didn't think you'd have Seymour. But yeah. do you remember Seymour's full name? No. His his second name was Asses. Oh right, okay, yeah. Seymour <laughs> Asses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it, yeah, because of the joke, yeah, yeah. that right, that got played, yeah. And I just thought, you know, it would, it's going to be hard to be suffer with depression or something like that when you are to stand outside your back door at night going see more asses i want to see more asses in here yeah get in here see more asses a, yeah doing a most tavern <laughs> yeah, joke on exactly. yourself yeah night. it would yeah. just be fun i didn't think of it because of that it's just sci um fry just seemed to have a lot of fun with that dog yeah and it seemed to be a really nice dog he could he could sing walking on sunshine with fry which yeah. was his favorite song and he could swim in the bolognese and eat it at the same time yeah. and also do something else, which I assume was urinating. But <laughs> he's a very talented dog, really. Yeah, and Fry, just don't let him in the kitchen. <laughs> I had a great time with him. And there was that really tragic ending where he waited for Fry for years. After 12 Fry years or something, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, 12 years. Then he got fast fossilised in mm. dolomite, as the professor had said. But then years later, they did the um, Bender's Big Score, mm. the, the film thing, where... Bender was chasing Fry through time to kill it like a Terminator. <laughs> and um, Fry hid out in the year 2000 for a while, like an older version of Fry. And he um, he had a whole life with Seymour. So they kind of corrected Seymour's life a little yeah. bit. Because it was really sad. Because I think oh. when um, when Bender first, sorry, when Fry first realised that Seymour had lived 12 years, he just assumed he'd had this happy life. And then he realised later on, didn't he, that it actually spent those 12 years just waiting just for sad and waiting for Fry to come home. Yeah, well, the viewer knows that. Fry yeah. never really knew that. So that that was why everybody got so sad. And like some of the, on so the commentaries... because of that. Yeah, the, the writers were saying that people got key people coming up to them at uh, conventions and things going, oh, don't expect to cry into <laughs> cartoon. <laughs> so yeah, they did fix it after a while. But I think Seymour... Just in his own right, seems like a, a great dog. He would have. be a great dog, but and he... as I say, it would be hilarious. Yeah, I've you're got... the pet from um, Futurama. I do have one? don't have another pet. I do have two more dogs. I was thinking of. All right, I'll well, do my other Futurama yeah. one after you've done the dogs. Yeah. Right. So the other one, other dog was Koro from Akamiga Kill. This is from an right. anime. Anime. Right. Okay. Um, his full name is Hecaton Kiris or something. I, I, it's unpronounceable to me. I can't pronounce his full name, but he's a, both a dog and an imperial arms. Right. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Kami Kakil, um, people have these imperial arms, which are rare weapons of incredible power. Mm-hmm. And it's said that when two uh, imperial arms users fight, one of them has to die. Okay. Okay. Um, but it, but Karo was the imperial arms of a character called Seriu ubiquitous who was part one of the imperial police one of the villains mm-hmm. uh but caro was this really nice cute little dog yeah james who... just killed a bird by the way james he just killed a bird yeah See, just because is... we mentioned him earlier on <laughs> yeah uh, he just walks across the fence carrying a bird in his mouth but can he kill xenomorph <laughs> well he's working up to it <laughs> go jonesy yeah okay 
Um, anyway, as I was saying, yeah, Kuro was a really nice, cute-looking little dog, and people used to come up to him thinking of this cute little dog. Mm. Uh, but he had a berserk mode, right. <laughs> which he turned into this gigantic, muscular beast that was <laughs> absolutely enormous uh, creature that was self-repairing. So you had to like find his circuit to destroy him, right. and so it was incredibly hard to defeat. And he can store equipment for Seriu. So Seriu has uh, like weapons in her arms so she can fire from her arms and things like that okay. and she can like reach an arm into in, into Koro and he closes his mouth down on her and when she pulls her arm back out she's changed the weapon right okay <laughs> so he's very very useful as well as being yeah. a really cute dog that sounds very anime it is very anime so... Akami Kakil is very anime um so unless you've got eyes that big, you can't really use that. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's also another Discworld character here, Gaspode. The Wonder Dog. The... <laughs> now, Gaspode, he appears in a number of the Discworld novels, mm. particularly with regards to uh, Sergeant Angua and uh, Captain Carrot yeah. uh, from, from the Night Watch. He's a very small dog. He's managed to get just about every kind of disease going. Oh, yeah. But he is brilliantly star- sarcastic. Now, he's lived And he can the... talk. That's the main thing. Oh, well, yeah. And this is it. He's, he's kind of required for sarcasm. He spent a number of yeah. nights around sleeping around the high-energy magic building because he's a street dog. Yeah. Um, and as such, his brain's been developed. So he has quite... An... And I almost didn't include him because of his intelligence level. Because mm. he is a very intelligent dog. But he still definitely um, is a dog. He's still he? very much a dog. But he's got brilliant street smarts. And when you read him, he's, he knows how to survive on He'll the streets despite being really little. People are just here, feed the dog. Yeah. <laughs> he manipulates humans. He's got what he calls the power, which means he can manipulate humans um, by speaking. And because they don't expect the dog to speak, they think it's their own thoughts. Yeah, they tend to just do what he says. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, sometimes he uses that to get his own back after someone's just kicked him or something like that, or yeah. to get them to feed him, or like what a what a good little doggy. Uh, let's give him a biscuit and things nice like to, that. And to have him, yeah. and just give him a good wash and take him to the vets yeah. and give him a better life than he's had in Ankh-Morpork. But he didn't want that when when someone when uh, veterinary arranged that for him, mm. he ended up then going out straight you know bolting out the door and trying to rub, get the gate's collar off and rub mud on himself and build his mm. smell back up because he didn't want that he, he liked living on the street but he was a brilliant dog and he even defend he was uh when one one book he was defending carrot now this was the fifth elephant right um and carrot had passed out in the snow because he hadn't eaten in three days mm-hmm. and a wolf pack approach mm. and uh this plucky little dog tried to defend carrot from this pack of wolves, didn't they? Oh, that's nice. And uh, you know, again, I like I like loyalty in a pet. And in in the same book, he also had a werewolf by the ghoulist, didn't he? Yes. <laughs> and for for a, a small dog, I think he's like a terrier, isn't he? Yeah. Um, he seems to be described that way. Yes, yeah. from the descriptions of him, he seems to be a terrier. Uh, so he's a very little dog, but he is absolutely brilliant, and he's one of my f- favourite pets in science fiction. Yeah, um, Gaspode is one of the ones I thought of, but I, it was the intelligence thing again, I thought. so, And that brings me on to talking about my other one from Futurama, which is Nibbler. Nibbler! Uh, With the nappy. Yeah, that's an advantage. <laughs> and when he does, and what he does poop is dark matter, which is useful for your starship. 
if you have one that runs on dark matter, like the one that the professor invented. And Nibbler, he does eat a lot, but Leela seems to find enough for him to eat, or like, doesn't he? he just eats a whole bowl full of that chow stuff. But if uh, if you get attacked by any kind of big alien or something, he would also eat them. And also, he is the high commander of the Nibblonian fleet as well. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's weird because I know we, we talked about the intelligence thing, but he pretends to be mm. just a, a little weird pet all the time, doesn't he? Um, and then he will suddenly talk. He says he can't. He just can't just talk. He can pontificate. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, tells them something important they have to do because mm. there was that one about Fry's brainwaves. You had to defend the Earth from those giant brains, didn't he? Um, and there's several other things that that happened. But after that time, he forgot to wipe their brains. He normally wipes the brains after his talk, so then he just goes back to being a pet. But yeah, one time he didn't do it, and. Um, and then when he does talk, he's like, why aren't you surprised I can talk? And it's like, we forgot to wipe our brains last time. He's <laughs> like, well, you've just been still treating me like a pet. And it's like, well, you're just so cute. So I think even though Nibbler is intelligent, I think he would be a very good little pet to have. Um, because it's most of the time he would act like that. It's good to have a pet that has their own fleet. It is, yeah. Even though their cute little ships can be defeated by hitting them with folded up chairs yeah like he said our fleet is no well, match for their well, mighty chairs they are chairs. effectively space penguins so <laughs> yeah that's basically what's gonna happen uh, you're not gonna expect a savage war fleet from a bunch of space penguins no. although i would watch that film if it was ever made <laughs> yeah space yeah so that, that was my other future one i'm sure there's a lot more there but th- those are the two that really stand out there yeah so you decided nibbler as opposed to pingu yeah <laughs> So uh, another category I put together um, was wolves. Now wolves are my favourite creature. I absolutely mm. love wolves. Um, and there was three wolves. Well, one one wolf and two groups of wolves. One was Hopper from the Wheel of Time by uh, Robert Jordan. Okay. Now Hopper was originally a, a character. Uh, was a, a companion of a character called Alias. Um, without going into potential spoilers, he then became the companion of Perrin Ibarra from The Two Rivers. Right. Now, it's hard from this point not to go into spoilers because one of the main reasons I loved Hopper, uh, two things. First, he actually taught Perrin mm-hmm. quite a lot. In Wheel of Time, there's the dream world. Mm. So the wolves have the wolf dream and uh, where all the different wolves live in their subconscious when they're asleep. Right. Uh, and also when they die, their minds continue to live in the dream world. Okay. So um, he Hopper was a great creature. He taught Perrin how to use the dream world. He gave his life twice, once in the waking world and then later in the dream world to protect Perrin. I mean, a pet, a pet, a pet that would die for you once is a wonderful thing. Yeah. This guy dog. died twice to protect Perrin. And okay. he taught him a lot as well. So, oh, that's nice. So, um, you know, I really like him for that reason. Then there's the Fenrisian wolves mm-hmm. from Warhammer 40,000. Okay. The wolves of Fenris, the right. space wolves. Mm-hmm. Now, there are different kinds of Fenrisian wolves. The best kind, in my mind, is the thunder wolves. Mm-hmm. They're like eight feet tall. They're the size of a rhino. Uh, they are taken into battle by, by the space wolves. And if, the, if their master falls, they'll... Uh, stand and protect the body or they'll drag them off the battlefield yeah. these are incredible beasts are they pets though? they 
are still pets, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm classing them as pets. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's the direwolves, which you mentioned before. And I think we were thinking for the same reasons. I mean, one of the things I thought was that, you know, much like the Fenrisian wolves, the direwolves are that big that you wouldn't need to carry a weapon. (laughs) You've got got this direwolf to protect you and they're, again, they're loyal. But they do seem to die a lot. Yeah. They, they should almost be called die wolves. <laughs> yeah, well, each kid had one, and then, yeah, as it goes along, they get less and less, don't they? It's, yeah. It gets sad. <laughs> there are fewer die wolves in the world than there should be. More than the one in our world. Yeah. <laughs> so, what's your next one? Um, the next one is from Watchmen, mm. and that is Bubastis. Bubastis. Yes, which yeah. is a pet of Ozymandias, and he just kind of appears on a few pages. I um, well, there is. I don't know if you can we'll see. Put a yeah, a picture. Page. So he's just kind of walking around with him and watching these big screens of his evil plan. And I just think if you're going to be an evil mastermind, then having a creature like that would be the way to go really and I did think of Bubastis because he does look like something mind. from Egyptian mythology doesn't he he does yeah and it kind of goes well with the kind of melodramatic stuff that Ozymandias wears so <laughs> yeah I just thought that was a, a pretty cool one um, and one that I may not have, have thought of at first but just with a little bit more thought thought of that um, just because it is actually a pet mm. Um, not just a, a creature that we're thinking oh maybe we could domesticate or something so yeah that's one of my other ones the next one I have is from a game and it's the only one that I've got here that's from a game and it is Trico from The Last Guardian so obviously there is um, this is in the series from Ico and the Shadow of the Colossus and then just recently The Last Guardian has come out and the Colossus, uh, the Colossi, would be good, but I don't think they are pets at all. Matt probably would if he looked at them. But um, <laughs> obviously, they are absolutely massive. But in the Last Guardian, you are basically, it's basically a platformer, but you have this one companion with you, which is like a giant dog mm. called Trico, and he technically he kind of looks like he is a Colossus. He's not got quite as much stone on him, or he doesn't seem to have any stone. Whereas the Colossus and Shadow of the Colossus seem to. Um, and he is, just looks like a big, very cute... He looks like the small kind of dog mm. that you might get, but as big as a house. And most of his body is feathers. He's got like a mammalian face, and then most of his body is feathers, and he has wings. He can fly a little bit. He gets better at flying as you go along. But what he will do is kind of defeat your enemies uh, for you once he gets used to you. But the nice thing about him is he gets all riled up when he does that. And um, he's kind of carried on barking and like stamping around. And you have to climb up his back and stroke him to calm him down. He does very much seem like a pet, even though it's massive. Mm. So I think that would be a very useful one to have. And he's just... um, You do get to like him as you play the game, as you go along. So that's... uh, Yeah, that was one of my other ones. Okay. Well... One of my other uh, ones I had was the Felbeast. Okay. Again, this is another Lord of the Rings creature. Okay. And now the Felbeast were rode by the Nazgul. Uh, mm-hmm. They were given to them by Sauron. And they were basically large winged creatures without feathers. They looked nothing like any kind of bird. Right. Um, but they just... 
there was just something really dark about them that just yeah. appealed. It's kind of like it's probably the most metal creature on this list. <laughs> you know, you can imagine. Yeah. You can imagine like the Nazgul flying around in them really easily just by looking at them because they look like yeah. something that would be ridden around by the Rex. They don't look so much like dragons themselves, no. do they? They look a bit like if dragons had lived underground for a very long time. Yeah, and they used to not have sort of like the those sun. pale and darker creatures. Yeah, elements and, you yeah. know, they do they look, look pretty good. Gross. They are very cool things. So yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good one. Um, I'll just say the last one that's on my list. Um, it's not actually an animal, but it can be thought of as a pet. And it is from Ghost in the Shell. And it is a tachycoma. And I'm thinking particularly of in Standalone Complex, the first series, or the first gig, as they call it. Um, now, I did wonder if I could think of these, because they are very cute in that series. They've got these um, little voices, and they just have their own little community going on in the mm. Section 9 headquarters. But during that series, um, Bato does actually pick one of them to be his tachycoma. And he starts giving it this natural oil rather than the synthetic oil. And that kind of causes some reaction, something to do with the chemicals of it. It makes that one tachycoma become individual. And it kind of runs off one night and makes friends with this little girl and helps this little girl try and find her pet or something like that. And... But I just end up kind of keeping that one as his pet. And I think that would be a really cool thing to have um, because they are basically weapons. And they sometimes call them think tanks because they can think for themselves a little bit. But especially in that first series, I think um, they could be considered to be pets and it would be a cool one to have. In the second series, they're all kind of networked and their brain is on a a satellite and <laughs> their consciousness gets kind of beamed down to them. But in the first series, they're a bit more like individual little things. So even though they are robots part vehicle part weapon <laughs> um, they do seem like something that could at a stretch be thought of as a pet so yeah. and that would be something that i think would be really cool well i've got one that will follow on quite nicely from that as well i think and that's the scutters from red dwarf yeah scutters uh, uses them as hands yeah so, yeah <laughs> but they often just do rude gestures behind his back yeah. <laughs> again kind of like gaspo they've got a bit of sarcasm to them a bit of wit um, yeah. They're essentially service and maintenance robots, so they're like mo little motorized boxes with like a single limb and then like a claw at the end of that, so they can yeah. they can do things. But I really like the scooters. They they yeah, like they've the got scooters. a lot of character to them, mm. even though they look fairly drab. Yeah, yeah, they just look like little normal things, but it's like what they do, isn't it? Yeah. Like sometimes they find them in the cinema or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, the scooters were fun. Mm. And because um, this had fish, didn't he? he had Leonard and McCartney, robot fish and stuff. But they're, they're not a, so good. There was a lot of ro yeah. robotic things. I mean, there was a robotic toilet, wasn't there? It was like <laughs> yeah. a talking toilet in. And he had an argument with the vending machines. And the toaster. The, to the toaster. Yeah. I did. But he's so annoying, though. <laughs> the toaster is incredibly annoying. But it's what's quite funny about that is that you can get into some quite interesting conversations with the toaster. Yeah. But trying no to get him not to talk about <laughs> toast. Yeah. Yeah, but no matter what you talk about, he t manages to turn it back to toast. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's Which it. is great if you really like toast. Yeah. I don't like toast. That's why it's <laughs> not on my list. So. And it's one of the... Um, in the Red Dwarf books, um, I mean, his character has quite a lot to do, actually, which is you don't really expect. Yeah, I mean, he, he basically talks Holly into some incredibly... Um, ill-advised stuff just because Holly's so bored and only has the toast and salt. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's a powerful toaster. Yeah. It's yeah. the toaster behind the throne. Yeah, just because he wants to find some way 
that you can cook loads and loads and loads of bread for you. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's in many ways it's it's from a good motive. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, now I've got two more left on my list. Yeah. So the penultimate one, and I did think about not including this. You probably shouldn't have done that. And I, which means no. I probably shouldn't <laughs> have done Godzilla. That's not a pet. It Move could on. be a pet if you could domesticate it somehow, if you had a way of controlling it. Are you going to spray it? <laughs> <laughs> but I just thought, you know, it's it's uh, it's a giant lizard. Mm. It's radioactive. It shoots lasers. It is cool. There's nothing there not to like, is there? Yeah. Have it on the list of something else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure Godzilla will be on another list. Let's but put Godzilla... it on every list. <laughs> <laughs> So Godzilla was on my list. And what's the ultimate one? My my ultimate one, the luggage from Discworld. Actually, yeah, that is good. Yeah. The luggage. Now, the luggage is sapient, made of sapient pear wood. It's effectively a chest with about 100 different legs. Mm-hmm. It's got... It's sentient, but I wouldn't necessarily describe it as particularly intelligent, like I would something like Gaspode. It doesn't talk to you. No, it just eats people. It just eat, but it eats people. <laughs> but it likes them to notice on their own. Yeah, it doesn't like if Winston's in loads of trouble, it will just uh, stand behind the person. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like you, you just like them to find out on their own <laughs> you, that you're going to eat them. <laughs> but it's really, really a, a cool, cool thing though. The luggage, I, lo- I love the concept, and it's introduced right at the beginning of the Discworld series, yeah. where it's, two flowers got him and he's. Uh, he's got all his goods and everything as he's going on his travels, uh, but also it opens up and just eats people. And you, and then the next minute you open it up and the person's gone, and it's just two flowers, clothes, and things again. Yeah. It? And in the science of the Discworld, even he came to our planet, which I think I think he plays quite a good role in that because that's the only way that they can get anything from our world into their world, mm. because um, they sent Rincewind there in like the virtual reality suit. And then suddenly they realise that the luggage is there paddling after them. Yeah. And there's and the same but it can go it's like how can it go there? Like it can go anywhere in space and time and it's like, yeah, but not that bit and it's like I don't think not that bit was in part <laughs> of it. So yeah, basically it will follow you anywhere yeah. with all your stuff. because uh, it's kind of got infinite space inside it or something, mm. hasn't it? As yeah. well. So yeah, that is great. I may still not consider it so much a pet. I consider it more furniture, uh, though it, incredibly good furniture. It's it's kind of like a combination of furniture, a pet, a companion, and a guard. Yeah. Because it's sort of you can put your stuff in it and it goes with you. And again, that would be incredibly useful to have. Yeah. Especially would. now we're having to pay for bags when we go <laughs> Just imagine, <laughs> imagine that being there in in Asda or Tesco or something, yeah, yeah. and, and uh, or Sainsbury's, and you you you're just picking up your milk and stuff and just putting it into the luggage. You yeah. know, it would be it would be very useful. Now, a lot of what I've been trying to think of with this list mm. was how I could use it in my the real world, my real life. Yeah. The luggage would be incredibly useful, it and be. It, because it's got infinite storage space, mm. I could store all my games in there and all my books. It would solve a lot of my storage issues. It would solve this room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it would be very useful. That it kind of I was trying to think what out of the ones I'd mentioned which one would be my ultimate first choice. Yeah. And it kind of came down to like a, a tie in many ways between Lockjaw for his teleportation abilities, yeah. Gaspode because he's great, and the luggage for his storage issues. I think following on from my previous Tiny Meeple's Big Talk, mm. if I had my ship, Gaspode would be the one I'd want to have with me. Okay. 
we're going to kind of build up a fantasy world yeah. as we go along here. So I'm going to have my t- my uh, Klingon bird of prey with my TARDIS uh, inside it and Gaspo running around. I think and the I'd, luggage would yeah. be a great card in that situation. Yeah, it would be better, yeah. I think... Um, what would be your number one? Out of my yours? number one... Well, if you're going with that kind of thing, then I'll... I think I'd go with the Tachikoma for my number one, just because yeah. you can ride around in it and stuff. It's um, a good choice. Yeah, so we've been a little bit loose with what we would call a pet. And we might need to establish a few rules when we do this <laughs> in the future. But we still have no to keep rules. it... No, we still have to keep it pretty loose because it's a bit more fun to find out when we're actually having this discussion <laughs> it's like like what did matt think when we came up with this so, yeah. Yeah. what did he think we were talking about <laughs> so yeah that is and i would say that i've i've not really looked at these and chosen with the thought of my evil plans being at the forefront because otherwise no. that would have been probably one of the dragons but they've always got to fit in with the evil plans otherwise you can't really imagine them as a pet I think Gaspode might be a little bit afraid of my evil plans and Lockjaw would probably try and stop me yeah. whereas I can I can definitely see the the luggage joining in somehow he would just do whatever yeah. <laughs> I don't think he really minds yeah. yeah I think he would so yeah that is our favourite pets from sci-fi and fantasy so I hope that has been very informative and will help you in your daily life. And when you're next going into the pet store and choosing a pet, maybe think about about this list. See what they've got. If nothing else, it would be really interesting if a load of people were going into pet stores and asking for a tachikoma or saying, excuse me, have you got a foul beast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully some good can come of this. Well, this is it. We, we try to be good in a meddlesome way yeah yeah meddlesome i don't know who you are but we're the middlesome meeples and it's time to talk about books a very particular set of books this week richard's going to present a book to us by robert reed yes this book is called marrow and this is my very kind of dog-eared copy of it and that's part of the reason why I want to talk about this. It's one that I have... Well, I read it when I was quite young. Um, well, I was old enough to kind of understand... It was kind of like 17, 18, that kind of age. But um, it really blew my mind. And I had been reading quite a bit of sci-fi at the time. But in a way, this kind of ruined the rest of it for me. Because the scope in this book is so massive that other books I was interested in afterwards it it seemed a little bit too narrow really like they were just kind of dealing with little things that it seemed even if it was in the future it seemed basically like it was just uh, the same world as we're living in just with a few extra gadgets and things and maybe we live on some different planets or something like that because Bishop was this um this book was set so far in the future and in such a strange society compared to what we're used to. Um, What it's actually about is something called the Great Ship. And that's something that I did want to talk about when we were doing our What Ships Would You Like to Live On? If we had got onto what ships from books we would like to live on, this definitely would have been my number one choice. Now, So look out for a Tiny Meeple's Big Talk special about sci-fi ships in books. <laughs> yes, yes, which is going to happen at some point. So, um, right, what the great ship is, 
is a ship that was actually found by humans rather than having been built. Now, if we just think about the well, I'm just going to have a, I'm just going to read a little bit of the beginning of Marrow, just uh, while it's just it's just describing the ship being found, but it's being described from the ship's point of view. It's talking about how um, it's noticed some little uh, creatures coming towards it in their ships. They've come from a yellow sun, which we understand as being our sun, and tries to talk to them, but it's got no voice. And they explore the interior of it, find it completely empty, and then some more turn up, and they start to colonise it. Just this little passage here where it says like how they realise how old it is. It says, My scars and my trajectory implied my age. No galaxies lay behind me, not even a dark half-born galaxy of consequence. That kind of emptiness has few obstacles. Comets are rare, suns are rarer, and even simple dusts are scarce. Yet my leading face was cratered and cracked, implying to the curious animals that I had come a terrific way, and that I was old as their home world. So, that's just, it remains mysterious as you, um, as you go through this, but the ship itself is actually 20 Earth masses, so that's how big it is. And I just pictured that as being 20 times the size of Earth, mm. basically, because I know mass is a slightly different thing. Um, but what the first humans that colonise it do is they change one of the seas that are on it because it's it's kind of like shells and um, it says it's got seas of ammonia and methane and things like that and what the humans do is take one of the water seas and put some salt in it <laughs> and make the temperature just right for themselves basically make it into a sea and then they build a nice coastal city next to it so they've got this city on a ship and that's the first humans that colonise it but... Where we kind of pick up the story in the book is where humans have claimed this ship as their own. They have several captains for it. You need loads for a, cap- for a ship that because big. Because of the size of it. So, yeah. yeah. And they have a master captain who is like the leader of the whole thing. And basically humans have claimed salvage rights on it. But other aliens can come and stay there. They have to pay a lot. And basically they are taking the ship on a... They're circumnavigating the galaxy because I thought they might as well take it somewhere. And basically other civilizations or people from it can just pay for the privilege of riding on it. And they can get a little section of the ship and just make it into what their home world's like. There are three massive fuel tanks in it, which are basically seas of hydrogen, which it uses for fusion burn every now and then. That sounds like a massive health and safety issue. <laughs> yeah, basically it is. <laughs> you yeah. can just see somebody with a, a high-vis jacket and a clipboard going past going, hang on, hang on a minute here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there is quite a lot of bureaucracy going on in it, but in a very grandiose way, because yeah. obviously they call it the Grand uh, Hydrogen Sea, and that the main character washing in it, when they say that, just thinks... A fuel tank is a fuel tank. So, <laughs> and, yeah, and basically, what happens in the book? I don't want to give away spoilers. Um, the the word marrow is very kind of significant to um, one of the the main points in the book and the main things that they find out. But one of the main things that happen is that some of the humans get stranded within the ship, and they basically have to spend thousands of years um, recreating society and like over generations kind of rebuilding uh, technology and like to be able to get themselves back to the main ship itself and I thought that was an amazing concept particularly since these people 
their genetics are so advanced that they live forever. So you've got people that are existing with their great 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 grandchildren, and they are still young and and still having to babysit. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. It's um, yeah. That that's one of the most amazing concepts of this. Despite the size of the ship, it's like the type of people there are. They all have amazing healing abilities as well, just because they've started unlocking their own genetics mm. and things like that. So, um, so that is marrow. And there was a, a follow-up book also about the great ship called The Well of Stars, which is also um, a brilliant book, but very, very different. So that's why I just thought I'd mention this, because Marrow is about people being stranded within the ship itself, whereas The Well of Stars is where an organism tries to take the ship from them. So it's a very different and is that type. the same ship that's pictured on the front? Because that it gives is, you an idea yeah. of scale, because you can see the planet there. Yeah, it? yeah, I've got a planet here in front of the ship, and it's not covering it, yeah. so that is basically how big it is. Now, when they're going around the galaxy, Actually, obviously... it looks very much like a Death Star in that picture. It is, yeah. But the Death Star's the size of a small moon, whereas yeah. that's like <laughs> bigger than a planet. So, yeah. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very kind of detailed universe mm. that is created there. And there have also been short stories about the Great Ship as well. That's one of the reasons I really wanted to recommend Mario mm. today. And I want to do that quite early in our Tome Talks, mm. just because that was such an important book to me personally. Mm. And also, there's been so much kind of come from it. Mm. But stuff that people might not know, unless they're familiar with um, sci-fi short stories. Actually, um, I got a collection of short stories by Robert Reed just called The Great Ship. Mm. At first I thought it might be the third book. I've been kind of waiting for there to be a third one because you expect there to be a trilogy, really. And he has written more about it, but not something that I would really class as like the, th the third one. It just seems little to be... novella type stories. Yeah, so yeah. there was a, the collection of short stories and then there's this other one called Memory of Sky, which is called A Great Ship Trilogy. So... I thought, oh great, that's part of the Great Ship Trilogy. But no, it is itself a trilogy. <laughs> and I've been saving that one. So I've read a lot of the short stories, but I've not read the Great Ship, um, that one yet, The Memory of Sky. So I'm going to see uh, how that is. But since then, I have managed to read other sci-fi books. <laughs> I mean, um, there's another one by him, completely different, which I'll talk on a, a later tome talk called Sister Alice, which is a completely different type of story but still the main idea seems to be immortal humans basically mm. and I always think that's it's such an interesting idea because that's basically what we're going for mm. like with with advancements in medicine and things like that if you think about what the the end result would be I mean if they could uh, conquer aging mm. and in enhance the um, healing processes of humans just think what a completely different type of society that would be. Yeah, and that's so. always interesting to explore through through stories, isn't it? It is, yeah. So, yeah. I was wondering, though, because um, I, I haven't read any of his books, but one mm. of the things I do know about Robert Reed is mm. his writing at times has been called sci-fantasy as opposed yeah. to sci-fi because mm. it's there's a lot of pseudoscience and a lot of the scientific angles of what he's wrote has mm. been challenged... Yes. Um, which I think, you know, if I'm reading a, a sci-fi book, I don't necessarily expect the science to make sense. Mm. Um, I was just wondering what your experience of reading... Well, when... What, what I found is that when I read it at first, there was a lot of concepts in there that I hadn't really mm. thought of before. But that was probably because I was quite young when I read it. 
but um, what he seems to have done is take concepts and then kind of take them to their fullest degree right really and that might not be all that wise sometimes because like there might there's probably other reasons why humans can't or couldn't be as immortal as they are mm. in this i mean the healing is so flipping mm. fast in marrow <laughs> i mean in some of the others it's it's not quite like that but people can like take a, a severe laser hit or um or lose a limb or something mm. like that and it and things grow back very quick like thermodynamically that would yeah. that wouldn't really be very possible but. but there is i think with any kind of science fiction story fantasy anything like that you have to have a certain suspension of disbelief to be able you to do. really yeah. enjoy the material yeah and it but it has to be a certain amount mm. you know i can understand that if people if it's so bad that it seems like someone doesn't know all that much science yeah. then that would be very annoying well i've heard it said that in good sci-fi, you just need to believe one impossible thing, yeah. and then you can just enjoy the, the rest. rest of the story. And really, as long as a lot of the concepts are kind of based generally in science, mm. then it's kind of okay. I mean, this is a lot crazier than mm. m- most science fiction, and uh, yeah, I can understand why it would be called like sci-fantasy. Um, Sister Alice is far worse for that, really, because a lot of that is based in dark matter. Yeah, and. Obviously, you can just make up whatever you want about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that, well, that's the thing there. I mean, I think if, if you know, if I was writing a sci-fi book, mm. I would just use different concepts and just make up what I wanted to make up. Yeah. And, you know, just take it from there because you don't have to always make it um, make sense. Someone wrote to Gene Rodenberry, mm-hmm. asked a question about how one of the stabilizers works or something like that, <laughs> yeah. and his, his response was, "It works fine, thank you." <laughs> Right, yeah, that, that's the kind of thing. Yeah, I have been enjoying watching the original series of Star Trek, but one of the ways that I enjoy it now is just to not try and make it make sense. Mm. Because, like, one minute they can go at a certain speed in the ship, and then the next two episodes they get kicked out of the entire galaxy, mm. which you know, doesn't happen on any other Star Trek, really. Um, and and it's that sort of level of. No, no, this is a lot more grounded, I think, right. anyway. But it's just that it is taken to such an extreme degree. It's not like anything can happen mm. at all. Um, <clears throat> it is kind of grounded in scientific ideas. But I imagine if somebody was very, um, very into a particular field of research, then they might think, oh, that's not quite right. But, mm. you know, to me, and I think to most readers, um, the, the science would you are kind of satisfied with the scientific concepts or mm. I always have been anyway uh, reading them but then I have kind of also realised there'd be so many roadblocks towards this along mm. the way that that would be very difficult but like I say yeah you have to uh, believe one impossible thing yeah I just think in order of having a, a grand concept I mean then I haven't really found many books that are that have the kind of ambition that these do and that's kind of the main thing for me about it so um yeah i would recommend if you want to get your mind boggled then (laughs) to have a a go at marrow i had to actually stop reading it for a little bit sometimes because the idea of so many centuries was it makes you feel weird after a while and there's like there's a bit where i think the master captain makes an amnesty because they want to find a certain person but this person's a fugitive, so she declares a hundred-year amnesty. 
and loads of people come in, confess crimes and stuff like that. And this guy waits until the last 20 seconds of the 100 years to like saunter in and like turn himself in. And uh, it's just weird things like that. Mm. Um, it's just so outside our normal human experience. Yeah. And it's just strange to get but that that's in a sci-fi. Why we, like that's why sci-fi. we turn to sci-fi though, isn't it? It is, because, yeah. You know, otherwise we'd be reading things set in normal everyday times. Yes. You know, non-fiction. Mm. Yeah, you know, that's Twilight. It. And nobody wants that. You keep mentioning that. <laughs> I, dis- I really dislike Twilight. <laughs> Did it disappoint you when you were reading your teen fiction for girls? <laughs> no, what it was, was I was at somebody's house and they had it on. Oh, and the film. I ended right. up, yeah, I ended up having to um, sit through it. Yeah, that would be pretty annoying. Right, yeah. I understand that now. So, yeah. It was traumatic. <laughs> this explains a lot about Matt. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so thank you. That was uh, this week's uh, Tome Talk. So next week, Matt will have a book to talk about. So that was our, our show for this week. Thank you uh, very much for joining us. Just a reminder that you can find the individual segments of this show available both on YouTube and as a podcast. And you can watch and listen to all of that on our meddlesomemeeples.com website or by visiting iTunes for the audio podcast. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Live long and prosper. (laughs) Peace and long life, dude. Peace and long life. I'm not, that's what they say. Yes, I know. I thought you said it's them, not me. I thought you were, you were channeling your inner listener. Okay. Okay. Peace and long life. (laughs) Farewell, Quester, and thanks for joining us. If you wish to avoid the wrath of Greyscar and the Black, then subscribe to our show before you depart. Our fortress is located at meddlesomemeeples.com or join our banners by rendezvousing with us at facebook.com forward slash meddlesomemeeples, instagram.com forward slash the meddlesomemeeples, or follow the flight of the mountain bluebird to at meddlesomemeeples. Until next time, Quester, farewell and keep thine axe sharp.